0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Any place that doesn't stock a good cigar doesn't rank high in my book. If you must have one, I'm sure we can replicate it for you. Oh, you think that one of these uh, imitations can take the place of a hand-wrapped Havana oh, oh. I wouldn't know. Well, that's the problem I see here. All this technology only serves to take away life's simple pleasures. You don't even let a man open the door for a lady. I think what we've gained far outweighs anything that might have been lost. Oh? Well, I'm not so impressed with this future. huge starships and weapons that can no doubt destroy entire cities and military conquest as a way of life. Is that what you see here? Well, I know what you say, that this is a vessel of exploration and that your mission is to discover new worlds. (laughs) That's, that's what the, the Spanish said! Deck 36. And the Dutch, and the Portuguese, it's what all conquerors say! I'm sure that's what you told that, that blue-skinned fellow I just saw before you brought him here to serve you! He's one of the thousands of species that we've encountered. We live in a peaceful federation with most of them. The people you see are here by choice. So, there are privileged few who serve on these ships living in luxury and wanting for nothing. But what about everybody else? What about the poor? You ignore them. Poverty was eliminated on Earth a long time ago. And a lot of other things disappeared with it. Hopelessness, despair... Cruelty. Young lady, I come from a time when men achieve power and wealth by standing on the backs of the poor, where prejudice and intolerance are commonplace, and power is an end unto itself. And you're telling me that isn't how it is anymore? That's right. Mm. Mm. Maybe. It's worth giving up cigars for, after all.
1: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 26, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right
2: color and color it to black and white under the bedclothes everything will be all-
1: and welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. Email us at justrightchrw@gmail.com at gmail.com, or visit our website at www.justrightmedia.org, where, you'll, where you will find an archive of all of our past shows, including the current broadcast and CHRW Live. All the links to the chrwradio.com site as well are all there. And today our theme is going to be a hot one, let me tell you. Poverty and government. It's a theme I've been managing to avoid making a concerted focus on, believe it or not. This is actually the 92nd broadcast of Just Right. And I've only touched on this issue directly, many times indirectly, of course, but only really three times uh, previously on this show, quite a while ago. Show number 827 and 47, I checked it yesterday. It's a hot-button subject, even though it really shouldn't be. And that subject is, of course, poverty itself, and more specifically, poverty and government. And the question of what government should be doing to address poverty. With the news that London, Ontario has the highest, had the highest jump in EI claims anywhere in Canada just this past uh, period, it would appear for the moment, at least, that we are in the centre of this current economic storm in Canada poverty is just around the corner for many people who were not facing it only recently. So later on in the show you're going to be hearing some extraordinarily interesting uh, debate between myself and Michael Coren that was actually taped some 10 years ago. And I was surrounded in a room by what I would call poverty pimps all around me. I don't mind calling them that. They're not here to defend themselves today so I can say that. (laughs) But um, definitely you know I don't think there's anybody that I meet that doesn't think the government shouldn't be doing something to help the poor. And as wrong as this might sound to a lot of you, I'm going to try and demonstrate today that that is a totally incorrect attitude to have and that we're doing more harm than good. I'll explain the context of that and everything later. But before I get into that, I want to segue into it with something I start, just started finishing off last week. We we uh, we ended up at, at the end of uh, last week with a real short clip. I was introducing H.L. Mencken and talking about his history, which if you want to get into that, that's on last week's show. But we just got into um, his comments, which of course were all written uh, essentially in the first half of the last century, and uh, about the New Deal, something of course that he lived through in his time, and we're seeing a new New Deal today under Barack Obama and others, in Canada here too, even under uh, Stephen Harper but uh and we were reading from th- his book the minority report and uh which is just a, a bunch of notes unrelated all numbered and de- having to do with uh the philosophy of the new deal and the idea that government has to bail people out and help them and and basically place the entire economy under straits. Uh, basically, everything you're seeing today is a consequence of government action. Uh, uh, it's a story I just cannot avoid. It's the reality of the situation, and our politicians seem bent on just throwing more paper on the fire and then tossing a little bit of gasoline on it just to boot. But, you know, I already read this one last week, or a part of it. Worth worth noting again, it's his note three twenty twenty one about the New Deal by H.L. Mencken, and he basically, you know, talks about uh, the really bad effect. I'm not going to read the whole thing again because I did that last week. But the really bad effect in this quote, he says, is that the effect even of anyone living on charity throughout their youth, and not just welfare, but charity, mind you, that's 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 voluntary. You know, it was, it was common knowledge back in the first half of the last century and earlier that that kind of thinking is, as Mencken said, inevitably disastrous. People who grow up under that kind of a system cherish the unsound and the antisocial theory, quote, that its neighbors owe it a living. And then, you know, that's basically the whole sense of entitlement that people always talk about. Um, It's it's a psychological state of mind, and you hear it in union people. You hear it in people who aren't in poverty. You're going to hear it today from people who are not in poverty but who feel they're entitled to somebody else's money. And that's the irony of all the poverty-fighting. Very few of, of of the dollars meant to actually fight poverty get to where our politicians say they're going to go. And, of course, in his Note 75, Mencken notes it's a stupid deal, the New Deal. He says, the essential stupidity of it and of other such mass quackeries, quote, lies in their attempt to reduce immense and profound conflicts of forces, many of them lying deep in human nature, to simple moral terms. It's almost like trying to reduce a hurricane to moral terms, which is what I read last week. But interesting, here's a part I didn't read last week. Quote, "...unhappily, it is only when that transformation is undertaken that the interest of of the people can be aroused or their support assured. They find it extremely difficult to grasp the concept of causation devoid of volition." They have ceased to be sure to see the devil in a whirlwind, but they still see villains in all the manifestations of human biology, end quote. And, of course, of economics. And in his Note 89, he refers to any sort of new deals by the government as as a criminal deal, basically. He says the, the effect of every sort of new deal, and when he says every sort, he means every sort, every name you can give it, every new concept it comes up with. But he says it's to increase and prosper the criminal class. It teaches precisely what all professional criminals believe, to wit that it is neither virtuous or necessary to suffer and do without. All the old American virtues thus become ignominious, and if the thing goes on, as I read last week, Benjamin Franklin will turn into a comic and even a sinister character. The criminal believes, like the demagogue's client, that the world owes him a living, and that it is not immoral for the have-nots to seize the property of a have. Now, remember that for the have nots to seize the property of a have, you're going to hear poverty pimp one after another expressly, because I put them in that position, defend the use of coercion as the only means by which they choose to fight poverty. It's just amazing how they stick to it and they won't accept any other way. But, uh, you know, Mencken writes neither the criminal nor the demagogue, and a demagogue is somebody, uh, well, like Obama, like Harper, people who tell you the world's ending, but, but they got a solution, okay? Uh, they Neither makes any distinction between the haves who acquired their property honestly and those who obtained it by chance or fraud. It is sufficient that they have it and be can, can be made to discourage it. Now, of course, uh, he talked about uh, it's no deal for individuals. I read parts of this last week, and he always, you know, he, this is Note 301, by the way, for those of you who have the book, and he talks about all the incentives to industry that were being touted at the time. He calls that communism. Or he's referring to the duty of everyone to submerge himself in the state. He calls that fascism. And the wickedness of people who save their money to look out for themselves, you know. And uh, being forced to spend that. And that's called the New Deal, which we described in detail. That's what the New Deal was, as Milton Friedman explained. We'll be be hearing from him shortly, too. And um, basically... uh, what he's basically saying is everything that drives an economy has to do with human will, human ego, and the I- individual working for himself. And uh, he basically says, and uh, we, we went into a lot of this last week, that it was the individuals in society, the real people who created things and, and invented things that brought the rest of us with them. And uh, of course, uh, he, in his note 303, he talks about New Dealers being the eternal enemies of human peace and of security. Because they want to resort to things like customs barriers and protections, and and again more spending, and uh, he notes here they are promoted like all of these spending ma- things and all these uh, wild uh, government programs. He says are promoted by professional politicians, the eternal enemies of human peace and security. It is always to the interest of such politicians to arouse fear. They they make their living doing so, and then promising to get rid of the bugaboo by quack devices which, of course, one of the most quack devices he was talking about was the customs barrier. And in, and if you remember what he said last week, you know he's saying uh, he wanted to see the customs barrier go down because he felt Europe would really benefit from having the American five-cent cigar <laughs> available everywhere. And isn't it curious that in that Star Trek clip that you heard at the opening of the show, what's the first thing that uh, Mark Twain, the character playing Mark Twain, talks about? The five-cent cigar. Isn't that interesting? But uh, basically... What Mencken is getting at, I, I would say, is is the sense of entitlement that is created by constantly believing that, uh, you know, we, no one should have to suffer. No one should have to go through hard times. Everyone should be able to be carried by the rest of us in this social safety net. Nice idea in theory if you, if you believe in fairy tales, but it's never worked. Uh, poverty will never go away, regardless of what they're doing. We're going to get into that in detail. But before we talk about the problem of poverty. I just wanted to say one more thing about um, uh, the economy itself because this leads into the, the the next clip you're going to hear from Milton Friedman, which by the way uh, I have a personal connection to. Um, as a consequence of this clip you're going to hear by Milton Friedman which was taped in, in Free to Choose series uh, way back in 1980. He actually contacted me personally uh, as a result of this and it's an interesting story because uh, actually we got two letters from him. And um, the reason is that because of my affiliation with the Freedom Party of Ontario, of course, and I'll have to talk about that a bit later, um, we put out a calendar of individual freedom back in 1988 and 89, and we included Milton Friedman in it. And uh, we had him quoting, uh, we didn't know at the time, but he was relating a story about the example of a pencil, which was from a story called I, Pencil, written by Leonard E. Reid, and he used it in his as an example in his uh, Free to Choose series to point out how something as simple as a pencil could never be made by a single person. It requires a world market, a total world market, to be able to put together the simple graphite lead pencil. And, uh, you know, I was very honored to have received two letters from Milton Friedman, one in the summer of 88 and again in in February of 89 when, when he wrote... Uh, to us from, uh, where was he? He was a senior research fellow, Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace at Sanford, California, and said he was quite uh, honored to have been included in our calendar, but he did want to, uh, uh, you know, make it clear to me that the quote we had him quoting, which was his own, and it was taken out of, uh, out of his, you know, series Free to Choose, was actually inspired by the late Leonard E. Reid, who was, of course, one of the founding members of the Foundation for e- Economic Education Interesting, Uh, to my own surprise, I noticed as I was looking back upon the letters by Milton Friedman, uh, we also received one congratulating us on our calendar from Walter E. Williams, whom you've heard on this show many times and never even connected the two things. And um, so it's just amazing how how small the world can be. Now, I am reminded when I hear this following clip uh, about economist Faustino Balve's contention that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that there is no such thing as a local market uh, that can possibly be cut off from the rest of the world, and that the only real market is the global market. And I can think of uh, no better way to illustrate this point than in the way you are about to hear. And here he is on the importance of free markets to peace and prosperity. Here's Milton Friedman from his 1980 Free to Choose series, and when we come back, we'll be talking about that bugaboo, poverty. Poverty.
2: 200 years ago in Scotland, Adam Smith taught at the University of Glasgow. His brilliant book, The Wealth of Nations, was based on the lectures he gave here. The basic principles underlying the free market, as Adam Smith taught them to his students in this university, are really very simple. Look at this lead pencil. There's not a single person in the world who could make this pencil. Remarkable statement? Not at all. The wood from which it's made, for all I know, comes from a tree that was cut down in the state of Washington. To cut down that tree, it took a saw. To make the saw, it took steel. To make the steel, it took iron ore. This black center, we call it lead, but it's really graphite, compressed graphite. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I think it comes from some mines in South America. This red top up here, the eraser, bit of rubber, probably comes from Malaya, where the rubber tree isn't even native. It was imported from South America by some businessmen with the help of the British government. This brass ferrule, I haven't the slightest idea where it came from, or the yellow paint or the paint that made the black lines or the glue that holds it together. Literally thousands of people cooperated to make this pencil. People who don't speak the same language, who practice different religions, who might hate one another if they ever met. When you go down to the store and buy this pencil, you are in effect trading a few minutes of your time for a few seconds of the time Of all those thousands of people what brought them together and induced them to cooperate to make this pencil there was no commissar sending out offices from sending out orders from some central office it was a magic of the price system the impersonal operation of prices that brought them together and got them to cooperate to make this pencil so that you could have it for a trifling sum that is why the operation of the free market is so essential not only to promote productive efficiency but even more to foster harmony and peace among the peoples of the world How many people own a television? (laughs) Six people, that's great. Lying bastard. I saw the most disturbing commercial on TV a couple weeks ago. One of those third world commercials. I don't know if you've seen this one. There's one of that African-American guy, Walter Coppage, And he's walking along this road with this little girl.
0: And he's saying, please send money so you can put shoes on this little girl's feet because the road she's walking on is full of rocks, and gravel, and stones, and glass. And I'm like, pick up the child!
1: (laughs) Oh boy, there's such a lesson in that joke, I gotta tell ya. It's, you know, everybody talks about poverty, but not too many people actually want to do something about it because that would take voluntary action and usually on the part of the person who is in poverty, which is the thing that everybody wants to avoid, but that's not something you're supposed to say. Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We'll be with you from now till noon. So let's get into it. I'm going to swim right upstream. I know probably 90% of you will emotionally disagree with me. Um, at least that 's been my experience with meeting with people. you know I think uh, personally, I think if we lived in a rational society with governments doing only what governments are properly constituted to do, namely administer justice and provide defense, poverty would be a marginal issue easily addressed without government taxation for that purpose being necessary at all i 'm totally convinced of that and whenever, whenever I talk about poverty by the way, I never ever am talking about those quote, unable to help themselves. They are such a marginal group. If you're talking about truly people in need because of devastating disease, you know, paraplegic, that kind of thing, this number of people could not possibly pose a burden to any society, even on a voluntary basis. And yet here we are with a society that's poured billions and billions and trillions of dollars into so-called poverty, and we always seem to have more poverty every year. Interesting, I was listening to uh, Jim Chapman on Monday on his own show over at uh, AM 980 talking about it's our duty to deal with those less fortunate. Now, I know where he's coming from emotionally. Michael Korn basically expressed the same thing, uh, the same sentiment to me, and told me so directly. You'll be hearing that for yourself shortly. And I challenged him on that assumption, and you should see the sparks that started to fly after after that started, to say the least. But, uh, you know... A lot of people are, it's the emotionalism, and I want to talk about how dangerous that is. And at the end of the show, we're going to wrap up with some comments by Isabel Patterson, who explains why most of the harm in the world is actually, literally, she's not being facetious or funny or or anything. She says most of the harm in the world is done by good people with perfectly good intentions. And uh, we'll get into the details of that, but what we have to do is really rethink how we think about poverty and government. And uh, what I consider uh, you know, ironic, too, with, my, with respect to Jim and, uh, and both uh, Michael Korn, it, it's uh, ironic because on my first show of Left, Right, and Center that I appeared on with Jim and Jeff Schlemmer back in the late 1990s on, over at CJBK, the first show we did was on the issue of poverty and uh, I remember the next day Jim going on the air saying that the station got more calls than it ever got in its history after I let loose that hour. Because I think it was the first time anybody in London ever heard the idea that maybe it's not the government's job to take care of poverty. That's that's not a government job. Is that a hard one to wrap our heads around? I'll bet you it is for most of you. And of course, on my first appearance on Michael Korn, that's the first issue we talk about then too. You'll be hearing that one later. But just very quickly... I always go to my favorite philosophers to see what they have to say on a certain subject. I noticed Ayn Rand on the subject, not of welfare but of charity. And she says my view on charity, my views on charity are very simple. I do not consider it a major virtue and above all I do not consider it a moral duty. There's nothing wrong in helping other people if and when they are worthy of the help and you can afford to help them. I regard charity as a marginal issue what I am fighting is the idea that charity is a moral duty and a primary virtue, which is the exact opposite of what Jim Chapman and Michael Coren were saying. And uh, she adds, and then on the subject of poverty, Rand adds, quote, "If, if concern for human poverty and suffering were really one's primary motive, one would seek to discover their cause. One would never fail to ask, why did some nations develop while others did not? Why have some nations achieved material abundance while others have remained stagnant in subhuman misery? History, and specifically the unprecedented prosperity explosion of the 19th century, would give an immediate answer. Capitalism is the only system that enables men to produce abundance, and the key to capitalism is individual freedom. Poverty is not a mortgage on the labor of others. Misfortune is not a mortgage on achievement. Failure is not a mortgage on success. Suffering is not a claim check, and its relief is not the goal of existence. Man is not a sacrificial animal on anyone's altar, nor for anyone's cause. Life is not one huge hospital, end quote. And I think there's an irony in this, because it actually is in Ontario, where health care alone absorbs the vast majority of this province's tax revenues from all sources, and the lineups are huge. It's one endless line. Now, you know, McGinty is again out um, talking about, oh, yeah, they're going to end child poverty in Ontario. Now, they've got five-year plans, okay? We're into the Soviet-style ending poverty. We're going to end poverty in five years and keep coming back every five years with a new plan. Uh, This is poverty pimping, by the way, because if you're already going to throw money at poverty before you've even defined it, before you even know who's need, you are a complete out-and-out socialist, and you're not helping anybody, you're hurting everybody. And all these people, I call them poverty pimps, and one of them is London North Center MPP Deb Matthews, here this morning, introducing legislation yesterday, first reading, designed to force future governments to, quote, continue the work we began, end quote, on a five-year, again, Soviet-style communist plan to fund child poverty permanently, not even based on need. In admitting that such poverty will always be with us, the plan is being made permanent, and she actually takes pride in the fact that this makes Ontario's Liberals to be the first government in Canada and possibly in North America to take this leadership position. The strategy is aimed at kids, she says, under the premise that people in poverty have potential. And the best way to break the cycle is to make sure kids get an education and stay in school so, they, so they're increasing child benefits, Huh? So you want kids to stay in school, so you're going to increase child benefits. And Deb Matthews calls this the economic move to make and the morally right thing to do. Well, it's not economic. It's political, totally political. There's nothing economic about it. If it were economic, you wouldn't be doing it. Morally right? Wrong. Morality has to do with choice. Morality has to do with things like laws like thou shalt not steal, and that's the point at which she starts. That's the point at which I attack Michael Emmerling, and you should hear all these poverty pimps defending nothing but the right to steal. That's all they want, that's all they care about, they don't care who they're helping, they don't care who they're hurting, as long as they can be on that government tit. That's all it is, and that's all that the whole poverty game is. And you want to know why you you folks out there, a lot of you are losing your jobs? It's because these politicians are doing this. And if they can prove otherwise, you know, she says, oh, we've got the stats to prove that this works. I never heard any. Where are these stats? They don't exist. Give me a break. (laughs) Now, before you hear this next clip, I have to make a very serious point of clarification. Despite any of the arguments that I'm making now or I may make in my following comments, uh, you know, many of you know I'm associated with the Freedom Party of Ontario and the Freedom Party, and and I want to make something clear about that relationship and how it relates to some of the issues I talk about on this show. I have to make it clear Freedom Party has no current policy proposing any changes to Ontario's welfare system, okay? And it's not because we wouldn't do that, but now is not the time. Changes to welfare systems are totally premature. We decided that at our executive. And, you know, given that Ontario's universal health care system consumes 59% of Ontario's taxes from all sources, and that our universal education system is the second most expensive item on the provincial tax tab, uh, you know, welfare, believe it or not, isn't the highest item. So it's not the biggie that you have to tackle—you got to free up all that other money and free up the economy before you start tackling the lowest level of of the strata. Not that you wouldn't go there; you're still moving in that direction. My long-term goal would would be to get those in true need well seen to, but with very minimal or no government help, if possible, without their even really being aware of any changes being made in you know in where their assistance originates. And I think that's how even with healthcare, you can make changes like that. By the way, it's also not true that, you know, rumors going around, especially with the by-election, that we support, uh, that Freedom Party supports the privatization of all facilities. That's nonsense. We we, we we The party supports choice, you know, in, in, in health care, not just a single payer. It's a whole, whole other thing. But I say that in advance because... To know what direction you're going in, you have to know what the the end product is that you want to get to and remember, poverty is relative and constantly on the, on the increase despite record spending programs uh, to eliminate poverty. Now, in this next clip that you are about to hear, this runs about uh, so' run about seven or so minutes actually, and then you'll hear a little bit more as we come back out of the ads on the other side. And what, you'll be, what you will be hearing uh, here, this is a broadcast of the Michael Corn live show, and this is actually 10 years ago, less than uh, three weeks. It was March 18, 1999. Here we are in uh, February 2009. See if I sound the same, uh, what I was saying then and what I'm saying now, but I am on a panel. Uh, along with Michael Corrin in this case, uh, along with Laurel Rothman, National Coordinator of Campaign 2000, which, by the way, remember, this is in 1999, what you're going to hear, and uh, they had planned for years before that, they were going to wipe out child poverty by the year 2000. They had one year left to go, and by gosh, they were going to do it. And, of course, uh, what a joke, eh? <laughs> it just never stopped. They never learn from their own idiocies. But... Also on the panel was Chito Galefil, a single mom who was representing Mothers Against Poverty, and Paul Sabo, Liberal MP at that time for Mississauga South. Again, this is March 18th, 1999. This was my first appearance on the Michael Corrin Show of a handful of appearances I've made. I've been back to CTS several times. And, uh, well, here's where the fun starts. Let's go with it, and when I come back on the other side, I get to say the last word this time. <laughs>
3: I've neglected the callers. We'll get to all of you, because uh, the lines are very full. Uh, should the government be involved? in? Tra- I believe. I believe in redistribution of wealth. I, I, it's a principle that I, is based on, on my, my religious faith system. I'm a Christian. I believe that. Let's go to the lines. Colleen is on line 6. Hello, Colleen.
2: Good evening, Michael. Hello there. Hi. I, um, I have two kids and we're living in poverty.
3: I, I, are you working, Colleen?
2: no I'm looking for a job and that's another problem you know that the government saying oh yeah we've got jobs
4: going but where Mm -hmm. and how about childcare? that must be a major issue to really be able to enter the labor force with any sort of uh, feeling of security for your kids
2: well yeah I mean like I'd be willing to go and work tomorrow Mm. like I I would love to go out and work tomorrow like I'll be the first one to admit it and There's a lot of other people that would say yes, I need a job. Yes, where are they? But is is your
3: husband is your husband paying any child support?
2: Well, see that that's going through um, the family responsibility. (laughs) He's not paying right now. No.
1: Okay. So Colleen, you're saying then that you'd rather have a job than a handout. Is that correct?
2: I would rather have a job. Yeah.
1: Well then. You're agreeing with me then, because I'm saying that if this country had lower taxes and more opportunity, we'd have more jobs. We definitely do need more employers in this country. I'm not y- sure you know? all
4: agree with that interpretation. Well, okay. I'm sure you don't. Can I address? But I want simple, to answer. Just
1: one you. second. I want to say something Michael said here. Michael, you said that you believe in wealth d- redistribution and that you're a Christian, but my question to you is then, do you believe that thou shalt not steal? I or, do. Or, well, then, unless a Democratic majority approves? Is that no, the way it is? I don't believe a
3: majority will, but I do believe in a certain... Uh, uh, socially moral standard, you define theft as then, someone then who... Ha- oh, I- if, I, if I may finish, I did that. You believe that theft is someone who has an enormous amount of money helping uh, uh, his brother or sister out of a crisis. I don't define that as say theft. That say I that do, again. I don't someone, define that as someone, theft either. Someone who has a great deal of money helping his brother or sister out of a crisis. I don't define that as theft. No,
1: the theft you- is on your part to vote the other guy to give his money instead of giving your own Why? money. It's very easy but to be generous with other people. I do, give my, pe- well, I do I- give my own money. That's fine, it's a separate issue. But through tax dollars when we vote to vote, vote for, for uh, government poverty programs, we're basically voting putting our vote in to make somebody else pay. That's always a general no, expectation. Actually,
4: it's for all of us to pay so that at some point it will always be there if any of us well, need it. Then
3: that's but why the I say DSW we should get back to a on voluntary please, system. I must, I must, because Don't let me get off like that easily. So you're saying that no one should be coerced to do anything in society?
1: Not in the sense of meeting with someone else's expectations and their values. You have to be, but if, you if, have, I, if you make a commitment and you, right. and you default on but that if commitment. I want
3: to, if, 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 I, if I like your pen and I want it, may I have that pen? May I take it from you? If
1: I gave it to you voluntarily. No, but if I took
3: it from you, is that okay?
1: No. Why not? Because that would be considered stealing if you took it without my consent. Who would stop me? Well, hopefully your conscience. No, but forget conscience for a moment. Who would stop me if I did it? Well, if I could, I would. Okay, and if you couldn't? Well, then no one would stop you. The police wouldn't? Oh, if somebody laid a charge or okay. something. I'm not so sure where you're going would, with that. So the, poli- well, well, give me some time. So the police <laughs> could
3: get involved? And the courts could get involved? Yes. So you do believe the state has a right to coerce when you think it's a matter when, of morality? When
1: it's protecting someone's private property rights and when their you own think property, yes. Who absolutely. defines property
3: rights? Is property rights not the ability to feed your children?
1: No, property got, rights. Not property, the property is the your right way. to keep what you That's earn, so that no one else can. arbitrary
3: has con- definition of what is state coercion. It's You've my definition. It. I know it What's exactly. What's yours? And as and it's your definition, it has no worth. It has to be something greater than that. My definition
1: is shared by a great many people, and Actually, I think.
4: Actually, I would say that the definition of community responsibility is probably, from what we look at at our elected uh, representatives in Ottawa, is is a much uh, broader shared responsibility as. Uh, See, what
1: I'm saying is that I don't have a right to force you parties. to support well, you my know, causes.
4: I, I wish we could get this back That's on track the a little bit. Issue. We have oh, a caller. on track. We, well, <laughs> well, but again, it, it, what we're talking about, I think, is if we don't care for those who are unable to help themselves or are in straits where they, they need a hand up not a handout, but they need a hand up. Mm -hmm. If we don't help them, we're going to have poorer outcomes of children, which means higher healthcare costs, social program costs, criminal justice costs, education costs, which we all pay for. It is in our best interest to support those Mm. who need help when they need it.
3: But Paul, the point that Robert has made and it's one you'll hear made and, and see made in many of the major newspapers, is, is that we have been pouring for, for generations now money into the system. And the problem, in fact, seems to be getting worse. Now, we can talk about cuts that have been made in the last few years. Actually, they're not that important in the whole reign of things. Things have not really got that much better. The argument by libertarians is that if you liberate the tax dollars, more jobs are created, it all goes away. I'm not so
4: sure about that. Well, okay, uh, it's a philosophy, but I'm not sure whether or not it gives some hope to people well, who what are. what you
1: believe is a philosophy too? Don't deny that for a minute. And, and the issue is, which is the moral philosophy? Is the is the philosophy moral that I can force you to support some kind of social cause that I believe in? No, it's it's my it's my, or, it's my or own is that social your value. First
4: of all, it's a social contract that people have entered into in in establishing Canada and over a period well, of contract time that requires post-war.
1: a two-sided agreement to the contract. And that's not except, what goes on. Except that you have those who
4: are unable to help themselves and when you have a vision of a country, you don't want that's, the that's gap between the haves and the have-nots to be so wide that you have this stigmatism and isolation of, of people in our society. We want to have a harmonious society. We don't want to put people to the point where they have to commit crimes to survive.
1: Well, even during the Great Depression, the crime rate was not caused, it didn't get that high. Right. People. I want to get back to the cause. I just want to say
4: one last thing. Mm-hmm.
1: You're running in Ontario, the
3: Freedom Party? Yes, we are. To win seats? Correct. If you win them, what will you do? Regarding poverty? No, no. What will you do if you win seats? Will you then have, if you'd formed a government, mm-hmm. would you then have a, an ideology that you would put forward? Absolutely. So you would, in fact, impose your will just as other people impose their view of a social contract now?
1: I what you're doing, you, what you're saying is that it's possible to impose individual freedom and choice on people. What I'm saying is so you should
3: be consistent no, that's, in your argument. Well, no, that's, that's an
1: inconsistency in definition. We
3: will let the viewers decide on that. Let's, no let's go to Dora on line three. Hello, Dora. Welcome to Michael Coren Live.
2: Hi, Michael and yeah.
3: Gus. Hi there. Hello.
0: I'm um, just so honored to be um, talking to you tonight.
3: Kathy is on line six. Hello, Kathy.
0: Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. This is, uh, is Rob his name? I'm sorry? Oh, uh, uh,
3: yeah, uh, Robert Metz from the Freedom Party.
0: I have a question to him.
2: He here he's saying that he's uh, just a, one person that lives on his own. I'm a single mom with two children. No child support. I do have a job. But if you had kids, you tell me how you would support your children every day. I work Monday to Friday. I have a good job. But when you don't get the extra child support that a deadbeat father does not pay, it's very hard to make ends meet.
1: Mm. Well, definitely deadbeat fathers should be paying the bills for the children. They that should They should be to day. do it. Well, but because but it's a responsibility that they took on. It wasn't a responsible Nobody forced them to become a father. That's where the beginning of the force begins.
3: So you decide and when and someone is responsible and when they're not.
1: Well, they're responsible for their actions, not for inaction. Am I not responsible for,
3: for you if I saw you lying on the ground bleeding? Would I not be responsible to pick you
1: up? Well, you would probably do something about it. Do you think we're I'm responsible? Should, should I? You, should you go to jail if you don't? I don't think so. Okay, That's cool. the issue when so we're no, talking about I, government. Got
3: a break. 416 2030302 302
1: And there you have it. Isn't that an interesting discussion? Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM out of the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. I tell you, that was a learning experience for me in many ways because I've repeated it so many, many times, and I've seen the same arguments used over and over and over again, and everybody who uses them thinks they're the first person in the world that came up with the idea. (laughs) That's what's always so funny and the things we do to rationalize theft and coercion. Uh, You know, that last caller you just heard, her name was Kathy, single mom, two kids, says she has a good job, and yet she still feels entitled to go after the taxpayer for taxpayer money. Isn't that interesting? And even though she blames her quote-end-quote deadbeat ex, now I don't even get into that issue because half of that deadbeat father stuff is, is crap anyway, as most of you know, but Given that it is a legitimate claim, that there is an irresponsible parent out there, which does happen, uh, that's where the responsibility uh, is. And what you hear Michael Corrin trying to do there is equivocate, create a moral equivalence between coercion, quote, force used to defend one's own legitimate life, liberty, and property, and coercion used to... Violate another person's life, liberty, and property. And what he's trying to do in that whole argument there is make those two things sound equal so that he can justify his stand. And that's exactly what's happening. Now, the subject we were talking about that was actually that day was uh, child poverty. And that's the same subject that uh, you're hearing in the news today by the McGuinty government. A completely oxymoronic term. It's calculated to deflect the poverty issue from those responsible who are. The parents. And when poverty is defined on the basis of income, which it is, this is weird to me, I never understood this, then aren't all kids in poverty by definition? I mean, even if their parents were rich, wouldn't every child be in, in poverty? Because if you're going by an income base, how many kids are making twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year who are under 15 or something? I don't get it. I smell a rat, a poverty pimp who wants to service an industry and not help the poor. That's what's going on there. Oh, but I digress a little bit here. Now, Corn said he, in that clip there, he says he believes in the redistribution of wealth because he's a Christian, and I've heard many Christians say this. I'm not picking on him particularly. I like Michael. We agree on a lot of things, and you've heard, heard me on this show agree with a lot of the things he says. But here he is then, spending the rest of his time justifying coercion in the name of charity. You know, And quite frankly, being a Christian and justifying government welfare are completely opposite things, and they are so explicitly and historically. I'm going to be getting into that after the next break. But I think it is anti-Christian to force others to do the right thing. I was never taught that, even as a Catholic. If there's one thing the Catholic religion I always thought got right, and that was the concept of free will. And you do not, you know... What was the point of having a bunch of believers in something if none of them believed it of their own free will? What have you really got? You know, Nothing, not even that. Not even, <laughs> not even an empty nothing. So, uh, you know, and then, you know, if people are looking for jobs, like that caller Colleen, she has two kids living in poverty. She's looking for a job. The government has no jobs. Why are you going to the government for jobs to begin with? And, uh, you know, the whole thing about government providing jobs. They can't give you jobs. They might tell you where one is. They could provide a service maybe, but it would have to be provided by the private sector if it were a real job. And she doesn't even get her her point out before uh, the other poverty pimp who's into, uh, you know, Poverty 2000, Laura Rothman, right away, child care. What about child care? Don't you need child care? Like she's selling the product, you know, and uh, the mother's not really looking for that and uh, you know corin admits quote he that he believes that thou shalt not steal but let's change the definitions of theft and property listen if you're listening to this show online or you catch it later play it back play that conversation we just had back and listen to how the words are changed first he asks me what's your what's your definition of force what's your definition of property when i when i tell him what my definition of property is that it's the right to keep what you own he says well that's an arbitrary definition of force well I wasn't saying force, you know. And then the person right after me, the other lady, she comes out and starts talking about, oh, yeah, but the definition of community responsibility is this. And they're changing. The, not even five words goes by before they're changing a definition. That's epistemology, by the way. When you're dealing with definitions, that is the science of epistemology. And the, people, the reason people avoid clear definitions is because they're avoiding a moral judgment of themselves. I've seen it over and over again. You know, all these people that say, yeah, I believe in this, their own subconscious knows that they're wrong, that you can see it. When someone points it out to them, that's why you're pushing a hot button because the person's own value system is sent into conflict. And that's why, you know, Corn screams out, your definition of property is completely arbitrary definition of state coercion. Well, it's, it wasn't a definition of state coercion. It wasn't arbitrary. And when I said others others agreed with my definition, I meant other dictionaries because <laughs> I look it up and that's correct. And, you know, should no one be forced to do anything? You know, Michael pulls that pen example, you know, like saying that I can just use coercion when it suits me. Well, no, it's a whole different thing when... It, when you're defending yourself, totally different thing. And it's not when it suits you. I don't like to be attacked. Even if I have to hit back when I'm being attacked, it's not because it suits me. I got to do it. And then, of course, there's Paul Sabo, you know, who wanted to break the debate off. I played a quote from him, by, by the way, before on this show because he was the liberal who cut off the debate on that show. I was talking about why you can't debate with liberals. And uh, like so many, he talks about a hand up, not a hand out. Now that's a very interesting concept. If I if people actually practice that, I might not be as hostile towards government government handouts because they're all handouts. Cuz if that if if it was really a hand up and not a handout, if that were true, then anyone who ever got government help would be required to pay it directly back. That would be a hand up. But no government help is ever expected to be given back. They think you're giving back when you're paying taxes, which of course doesn't go back to the same source. And uh, when I suggested, you know, we should be cutting taxes, what does Sabo say? Well, it's cutting taxes. That's a philosophy. It's a philosophy. Nothing real to it. Doesn't put any more money in your hand. It's just a philosophy. And, of course, his spending taxes is a philosophy, too. And, uh, you know, when, he, when, when liberals tell you that they believe that the poor will resort to crime if they don't get the help, that tells you what they really think about the poor. That's their real attitude about the poor. They think the poor are a bunch of immoral, not worthy of their attention, give them money, shut them up, otherwise they'll rob us and kill us, which is not true, and that's not how I would want to be thought of by my government. And the idea that you can impose freedom of choice, as Corn would suggest at the end, you know, the Freedom Party came in, we were going to impose freedom on everybody, my goodness, what a contradiction in terms. What can you do with those kind of arguments well, as, if, as I always say, if everyone's inside the safety net, who is holding it up? Now, going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to hear a solution about what to do about all this and a perspective by Isabel Patterson. But first, a little bit more from the panel with Michael Korn and a few more comments on that when we return after this quick break.
2: It would meant kids could eat a proper meal at school. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be a good compromise between conservatives and liberals because it would mean that money would be spent directly on feeding children. <laughs> so there would be no. It's, a, it's
3: issue an interesting point. I mean, let, let me put this one to Rob. I'm 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 40. I was born in 1959. Grew up in Britain in 1959. Uh, you, you still saw um, bomb sites, and we called them prefabs, prefabricated housing, mm-hmm. from where bombs are dropped. That's part of the uh, the price of winning the war. And uh, we had milk every day, a carton of milk for us at school, and we didn't want to drink it half the time. What that was, of course, was that uh, the generation before me, often many grew up with rickets and terrible uh, malnutrition, actual starvation in Britain at that time, this was a government saying, this won't happen again, you will all have this. That was a wonderful symbol, a symbol of liberation, that milk that you would have every day. You would have had another generation That's what Germany did before the war, twice. And yeah, it Led I'd, them to I'd, a
1: world war I'd, twice. You're, you're saying
3: milk leads to war? No,
1: giving. The giving, reasons that led gi- to war
3: have nothing to do with it. With, in fact, Germany under Bismarck had a wonderful system of social welfare. That's not <laughs> exactly the, 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 my the, point. The, the it, it was
1: wonderful while it worked, but then when the price came to pay it. They had to default on their loans. They went oh, to war well, that's
3: nothing to do but, with providing a welfare system. Well, it it's to all do part with paying it. debts after Versailles. Well,
1: it's all part of it, but, but the social system look oh, at the social system in Canada today. Robert, how pay, can you say who that the Second World War was in caused in
3: part by debts in the welfare
1: system? Well it's 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 caused by profligate government spending. It was
3: enormous inflation. It was the Allies after the First World War being the, the treating Germany as a victim. Oh, I'm gonna take another call. I'll pull my hair out here. Frank, on line four. Frank, welcome to Michael Corrin Live. Yeah,
2: Michael, I'm glad to see you're giving concern to Canadian children. And that you realize... Is there something wrong? Well, according to these forms, you're supposed to be DIMS, but you're not, are you? I hope you're not disappointed. Pleasantly surprised is more like it. I guess I owe you an apology. If I had known you were gimmies, I could have processed your application much sooner. Gimmies? They're American slang terms. I try not to use them, but it's a bad habit. GIMMEs are people like you, people who are looking for help, a job, a place to live.
0: No, and what about the DIMS? Don't they need
2: help? The dims should be in hospitals, but the government can't afford to keep them there, so we get them instead. I hate it, but that's the way it is.
1: And doesn't that sound a lot like the Canadian health care system? Because all kinds of people waiting to get in there, but they haven't got the beds for them. And I hate it, but that's the way it is. Oh, boy, what an interesting exchange that last one was between myself and Coram. Uh, You know, spending welfare directly, and he talked about the 1959 bomb sites he saw, and he had a carton of milk every day, which basically, he he also pointed out, he says, that we didn't drink half the time, which just shows you a 50% wastage right there. But the the milk was a symbol of liberation, you know, and milk leads to war. (laughs) Really, you hear what I'm going to have to say in a moment. Um, You know, and he says Bismarck had a wonderful welfare system, and yet he says, you know, it's accompanied by enormous inflation. Uh, Hello? (laughs) He doesn't see the connection. And to deny that cause and effect, you know, and just going to the most recent symptom as the initiate event is, is the wrong way of looking at it. There's a, there's a continuum here that goes. And regular listeners to this show may recall that I did a whole segment on the finances of Germany that led the nation into a socialist collapse. Uh, detail, the dollars, the cents, who owed who what, what happened. Check out the, our site. You'll see all that stuff there. But most interesting, here's something that was actually written during the war by Isabel Patterson, the god of the machine, in which she argues that, quote, "...most of the harm in the world is done by good people, and not by accident, lapse, or omission. It is the result of their deliberate actions long persevered in, which they hold to be motivated by high ideals towards virtuous ends. This is demonstrably true," she says, "...nor could it occur otherwise." because the percentage of positively malignant, vicious, or depraved persons is necessarily small, or no species could survive if it were otherwise. Destruction is so easy that even a minority of persistently evil intent could shortly exterminate the unsuspecting majority of well-disposed persons. So certainly, she says, if the harm done by willful criminals were to be computed, the number of murders, the extent of damage and loss, would be negligible, compared to the sum total of death and devastation wrought upon human beings by their own kind through governments. Therefore, it is obvious that in periods when millions are slaughtered, when torture is practiced, starvation enforced, oppression made a policy, as at present, which is during the war, over a large part of the world, and as it has often been in the past, it must be at the behest of a very many good people, and even by their direct action for what they consider to be a worthy object. And she says this could not occur without cause or reason, and it must be understood that what she means by good people, she means good people who would not of their own conscious intent act to hurt their fellow men, nor procure acts wantonly or want to benefit themselves. You know, good people who wish well to their fellow men and want to guide their own actions accordingly. And nor is she saying that she's applying some kind of transvaluation of values where one person's calling something good and the other guy's calling it evil. No, she's saying, let's take it all even-even. We're going to call them good. And And she says, there must be a very grave error in the means by which we seek to attain these ends. There must even be an error in the primary axioms to permit people to go on using such means. Something is terribly wrong in the procedure. What is it, she asks. And at this point, she goes on to list a a litany of atrocities, uh, comparing private atrocities to public and government ones. Even the worst of the mass murderers and serial killers rarely manage to kill more than 50 or 60 people. Uh, But when compared to state murders and atrocities, you can count the dead in the millions upon millions. Remember our gun control show last week? And the stats of how many of their own citizens, many socialist totalitarian nations murdered? Now, bear in mind that she's writing this during World War II, and consider what you just heard between myself and Michael Coren, who couldn't believe that the war could possibly be caused by free milk. The irony of what you are about to hear will not be lost on you here. And she says, The present war would have been impossible without the excuse of doing good for the nation. The lies, the violence, the wholesale killings were practiced first on the people of both nations, she means Russia and Germany, by their own respective governments. It may be said, and it may be true, that in both cases the wielders of power are vicious hypocrites, that their conscious objective was evil from the beginning. Nonetheless, they could not have come by the power without the acceptance and consent and assistance of good people. The communist regime in Russia gained control by promising the peasants land in terms the promisers knew to be a lie, as understood. Having gained power, the communists took from the peasants the land they already owned and exterminated those who resisted. The whole population of Russia was put under duress and terror. Thousands were murdered without trial, and it was called social engineering by social admi- socialist admirers in America. If that's engineering, then the sale of fake mining stock is engineering, she says. And she talks about how millions uh, were worked to death and starved to death in captivity in Russia. And by the way, my grandfather died that way too in a Russian concentration camp of starvation. And likewise, the whole population of Germany was put under duress and terror. And she says, uh, with the war, you know, Germans were in German prison camps, G- Germans in Russian prison camps. She says they're basically the same there as they were in their own home regimes, because that that's that's how it just spilled over. But the principal political figures in Europe are all those who sold, the, uh, you know, who sold their countries to the invader. Are she says, quote, socialists, ex-socialists, or communists, men whose creed was the collective good, and here's the great quote, quote, with all this demonstrated to the hilt, we have the peculiar spectacle of the man who condemned millions of his own people to starvation, admired by philanthropists, whose declared aim is to see to it that everyone in the world has a quart of milk. End quote. Michael Korn, take note. Now I know where that came from. That was a symbolic uh, gesture of propaganda, actually. That's what they were being subject to, and Michael swallowed it, along with the milk that he only drank half the time. And so Patterson asked, why did the humanitarian philosophy of the 18th century in Europe usher in the reign of terror? It did not happen by chance. It followed according to the original premise and according to the means. The objective is to do good to others. If that's the primary justification, then the means is the collective, and the premise is that the good is the collective. So the root of the matter is ethical, philosophical, and religious, involving the relation of man to the universe. This is interesting, what she says about the great religions. She said that, um, you know, when people, when the religions were helping, the great religions, which she says are also great intellectual systems, have always been recognized, have always recognized, rather, the conditions of the natural order. They enjoin charity benevolence as a moral obligation to be met out of a producer's surplus, that is, they make it secondary to production for the inescapable reason that without production there would be nothing to give. Consequently, they preso- prescribe the most severe rule to be embraced only voluntarily for those who wish to devote their lives wholly to works of charity from contributions. Quote. And here Patterson described the tradition and Spartan lifestyle expected of such people and the significance of the symbolism that surrounded it in really fascinating detail but beyond the scope of what I can talk about today, especially since our time is running out. And however, she contrasts this approach to dealing with the needy with government helping people. And she says, the proposal to care for the needy by the political means gives the power to the politicians to tax without limit. And there's absolutely no way to ensure that the money shall go where it was intended to go. End quote. So welcome to London, Ontario, where city hall taxes without limit continues to spend without limit, where our Ontario government does the same, where our federal government does the same, and all with the conscious and tacit approval of 90%, 99% of us. And of course, we're all good people, aren't we? That's it for today. I hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, act right, do right, think right, and stay right, and take care.
2: color, black and white.
1: Slept through the alarm this morning. Yeah, luckily it wasn't a big fire.